Uh, well, this is my last week to speak on uh, miracles, and I've given Chad a needed vacation so he could uh, spend some time with his newborn daughter, Hazel. Um, and I think this is going to be one of the more important ones in terms of uh, what I'm going to be talking about, and I want to open with this verse from John 15:7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So when my father was pursuing his Ph.D. uh, in theology, I was probably about three years old, and my sister was five years old. And he was also uh, pastoring a local congregation. And this congregation had two... uh, peculiar and particular theological positions, this this doctrine that they had. Uh, One of them was that uh, musical instruments um, weren't authorized by the Bible, and so they had no place in worship. Um, And and the second was that baptism was not something that uh, just obedient Christians did. It was fundamentally, absolutely necessary for salvation. So any person who was not baptized was just de facto on their way to hell. And my father believed these uh, in his life, but uh, through his study of the Word, uh, he found that he could no longer uphold these convictions in his ministry. And so he made the very prayerful and painful decision uh, to leave that congregation because he felt like he was really doing them a disservice because he wasn't able to uh, really hold on to those beliefs for them any longer. And, you know, there's a lot of very well-meaning Christians who believe these things, and so that's really not the point. But for my father, he just, he couldn't, be the pinnacle of those beliefs for them any longer. And sometimes decisions like resignation for a pastor um, show us the reality that churches are imperfect. They are, in many respects, places for sinners. That's just the reality. And in, in this decision that my father made, we really saw the imperfection come out. See, my, my father had the intention that uh, he, would, he would leave uh, and that a position would open up for him, probably in a Baptist uh, congregation. He had this hope and he had this belief because he really felt through prayer that this is what God was leading him to. But a lot of uh, congregants uh, and people in his old um, congregation, like elders, even local leaders of the same denomination, were saying a lot of mean things, a lot of hateful things, and were saying that he was going to fail in all his future ministries because that's just what God had for him, and that he was being denounced to the the minions of hell. Um, But it started out where my, my father really thought this is definitely a decision led by God. I mean, the finances were covered. When my uh, Auntie Claire, which is my uh, dad's uh, aunt, f- saw what my, my father did, 
she wrote out 20 $500 checks. And she gave them to my dad and she said, live life like you are. Don't change it. And every time you need money, you cash one of these checks. And if by the time they run out, you haven't found a job, well, there's more where that came from. So he felt pretty good. Like, okay, this is, this is good. I mean, I'm covered. Uh, but about halfway through those checks, he got a letter from the elders of the congregation that he left. And it was a very serious letter. And it had assured my father that God would make sure that he failed in future ministry for what he's done. And that's when darkness started to take root in his heart and in his soul. And he had the worst fear you could have in that situation, and that was that they were right. Maybe he was doing the wrong thing. His hope, the hope that he had for a new position was being dispelled by these people. And he was scared. And as the darkness set in for my father, so too my mother, because she was trying to be uh, the good wife and field all these phone calls that he was getting from elders and, and, and concerned uh, congregants and local leaders. And they were saying just really mean, hateful things about what was going to happen for them. And so my mom started to question it also. And what's really bad is that our cat, Smokey, had gone missing. And my dad, in probably the most horrible lapse of emotional sensitivity, uh, responded very poorly when my, my um, mother brought this up to him. She, she said, you know, Smokey's been gone for two days. And he's like, gosh, Satan worshipers probably took her and sacrificed her. We shouldn't have left her out that night. And of course, this didn't go over well with my mom. And one night, uh, my dad was out at the local library studying uh, for his PhD, so doing smart person stuff. And I uh, and my sister, we were, we were in the living room doing kid person stuff. And my mom went into her room. And she just broke down and prayed. And she was just questioning everything. God, are we doing the right thing? What's going on? First, Satan worshipers take our cat. Next, it's the kids. You know, what's, what's going on? Are you with us in this? Are we being obedient? God, you could, you could raise Smokey from the dead. You could do a miracle. And it's just, you know what, God? If you could just bring Smokey back to me, I would know. I would know that what we're doing is the right thing. That we're rightly related to you. That we're being obedient. God, can you do that for me? And my mom is, she is 
praying. She is a hot mess, right? She is, her hair is just everywhere. She's got mascara running down to her kneecaps. She, she looks legitimately like insane. And she's been praying for like an hour. And my dad, he pulls up. And uh, my sister and I, we, we hear him. So we, we run outside and my sister is uh, uh, pointing out that I fell off this screen utility box and I got a boo-boo and I'm like, sweet Ninja Turtle Band-Aid on my kneecap. You know, I remember this because um, falling is cool when you're a kid. And uh, my mom, sort of sensing that uh, we weren't in the house anymore, uh, walked out of her room and she saw the door ajar. But at that point, we were, we were trekking back in. And she had a moment of, of clarity. She saw all the people in the world that she loved the most walking into the house. She saw my sister. She saw me. She saw my father. And then she saw Smokey. And she said, Smokey! And we just jolt up. Here's my mom who has been praying. She looks like something out of a horror film. And she's screaming at the top of her lungs. So we're like, oh my goodness, like, whoa. But only she saw it. That was meant for her. So when we finally turn around and see, Smokey was here with a, a foreign caller uh, dragging a broken leg that, was, uh, that had a cast. And my, my dad says, you know, calm down. Calm down. You're going to scare the cat away. And she says, no, don't you see? This is a miracle. I prayed exactly for this. It shows us that we're being obedient to God, that we are rightly related to God, that we're doing the right thing. Prayer is powerful. It's so powerful that God listens and responds. And I, I've spoken a lot about miracles this week. Obviously, it's a sermon about miracles. But I want to end this series talking about what I think is the most important aspect of miracles. And I ended last week sort of giving a teaser of that, and that's that in many ways, prayer is the language of miracles. And so that's, that's the biggest point. But, sorry, this is funny. Uh, in high school, after high school, I left the Fun Center. Uh, uh, sorry, after high school, I went and worked at the Fun Center here in Wilsonville. And I was just an outside attendant. And uh, that was fun, right? You, you watch the go-karts and you watch, you know, the bumper boats and the other attractions outside. It's especially nice when it's nice outside and you're in the sun. But it, it can get exceptionally boring when you just are standing there watching other people have fun. So one of the things I would do to pass time, because I was 
just out of high school and I was pretty cool, is when, other, when another person was with me at the bumper boats, I would pretend not to speak English to the kids coming on. And I would, uh, I would use a few real French words and then I would just talk gibberish French, like, um, bonjour, parlez-vous français, les femmes de la France de l'Evillon? Oui, the, the English. And they would be absolutely confused, but it was fun to watch as they would try to communicate what they wanted, and I just would flounder about like I'm completely oblivious to what you're saying. And then uh, we would have a good laugh about it. Uh, but the problem was, a parent went and complained to the manager. See, but they didn't complain that I was speaking fake French. They complained that I was apparently speaking real Russian. And not only was I speaking real Russian, I was saying some pretty inappropriate things to their kids, apparently. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't get in trouble because I literally don't know a single word of Russian. And so it was really hard to sort of discipline me for speaking a language I don't speak at all. But what's, uh, what's instructive here is that uh, when dealing with languages you don't know, things can get pretty messy. And I get in trouble with this a lot because at Costco, um, when uh, I, I took a year of Spanish in high school, so not, not much, and I don't know that I did exceptionally well in it either, but I love phrases, Spanish phrases, and I'm pretty good with the accents, so I can sell proficiency pretty well, even though I'm not. You know, Yo tengo larga distancia gratis para llamar a donde yo quiera. Ah, mi corazón es delicado porque no está muy bien cuidado. You'd be like, well, like, this guy knows what he's saying, right? I don't. I know what those phrases mean because I've, I've learned them, but... Um, <laughs> but, so my coworkers had heard me say these phrases, and I didn't do, unfortunately, anything to dispel them of the notion that I was pretty good at Spanish. But the problem is, is that sometimes they'll, they'll call me on the radio and, you know, like our walkie-talkies, hey, Matt, can I get you to register 10? And see, I know a lot about the registers. I know a lot about how they work, about their maintenance. I, I know a lot of information. So there's a lot of reasons they could call me over to register 10. But when I get there and they say, hey, Matt, um, sorry to bug you, but uh, we needed a translator. And, and when the guy there is like, yo necesito pintura negra para inventar la botella aquel. There's no faking. <laughs> There's just no faking in that situation. I can't be like, guy wants some cat food, so uh, that's it, I'm going to go, you know. <laughs> but the reality is, is that with prayer, it's the same thing. There's no faking it. Prayer is to God. You can fake it to us. We might believe you. But if there's one person in the universe who knows you're faking, it's God. And that's who you're talking to when you pray. And so when, when I ended last week and I, and I spoke about prayer as the language of miracles, the thing is it's really the easiest language in the world. 
It can be spoken in, in any tongue. There are no words too foreign for God's ears. There's no accent too hard for him to understand. And when I, I studied miracles, I looked at the uh, original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, and, and saw how the terms and phrases were used throughout the Bible. I realized that I could not legitimately talk about miracles without talking about prayer. Because what I saw was remarkable. I saw that uh, in, in the Old Testament, God largely uh, worked miracles through uh, the judges and the prophets. Uh, and later, uh, uh, Jesus uh, worked miracles, and then uh, God worked miracles through the apostles. But the one thing that was consistent about miracles is that we see them happening throughout the entire Bible in response to prayer. And, and people argue um, that the Bible is largely split up into these epics or ages or periods or, or dispensations. And uh, they say that, that God fundamentally changes how he interacts with the world um, throughout the Bible. I mean, he goes through operating uh, through uh, the judges, through the prophets, uh, through Jesus, through the apostles, and through the church. And I, you know, I don't want to argue about the legitimacy of these, of these dispensations or periods, but there's one thing that's true, in that God does change or operate sort of how he works with people chronologically throughout the Bible, from judges to prophets to the apostles to church. But what we do see, and like I said, the most fundamentally consistent thing is that throughout the entire Bible, God hears and responds to prayer. That's never changed. And I, think, I, can, I can think of no greater confirmation, no greater sign of God's presence and activity in your life than his response to prayer. And I thought, wow, this, this really conforms to what I'm seeing now. The, the, the many accounts of miracles here and now in this present day are really in response to prayer. So what I want to do is I want to break down the basics of prayer. Because it's, it's really an easy language but there's a way that God wants us to do it. And when we do it this way, we can expect big things. And usually when we, we think about uh, Jesus in prayer, we kind of go straight to the Lord's Prayer, which says, uh, one, day, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in another it says, for thine is the kingdom, the glory, and power forever, amen. 
And this is, this is really good. But Jesus actually goes on, literally like right after this, and he says, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked. This is obviously a very good friend. And my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. And he says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your persistence, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. But what we see in this parable is my first point, and is that when we pray, we need to be persistent. We need to have persistent prayers. And I want to bring up something that Jesus said in Matthew 18, 4. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like, a li- like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're probably like, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about? And, and, and this is actually how I know that God's really uh, serious about persistence. Because he wants us to enter the kingdom like children. And it's just like a kid who just keeps asking and 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 it gets really annoying. But to God, God finds persistence or our repeated consistency in prayer to be beautiful. He likes the idea of us praying like children asking questions over and over again. He likes persistence. And this is not the only time uh, Jesus encouraged us to to be bold and persistent in our prayers. Uh, One night before his crucifixion, in in that beautiful, intimate setting in the upper room where he serves the disciples and he washes uh, their feet, and he he talks about how he's no longer going to be living among them. And in John 15, 7, Jesus said, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And as followers of Christ, we're his disciples too. Uh, And we ought to be praying in the same way. You know, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Ruth Ryan, who is uh, Nolan Ryan's wife, wrote uh, in her book, In Covering Home, that there was one part about Nolan Ryan's uh, career in baseball that she enjoyed most. And it's not in any sort of record book or game summaries. And it really happened ever since, you know, Nolan was playing in high school and she attended the games. Is that sometime during the game, he would walk out of the dugout and he would look behind home plate and he would scan the faces, and then he would find her, and he would smile and give her that 
knowing nod as if to say, I'm glad you're here. And see, that moment, out of everything in his career, was the thing she looked forward to the most in every game. It was the important, most important thing to her. And the reality is, is that those who love us long for us to acknowledge them, to, to give them our attention. And this is not only true in marriage and in family, but it's also true in our relationship to God. Throughout our days, in both big and small moment, God enjoys it when we step out of the dugout, so to speak, and we smile in his direction. And persistence is our way of showing God or of continually acknowledging, acknowledging God in our life. We're acknowledging his importance to us. It's our way of stepping out of the dugout. But as, as we read earlier, this comes with a condition. The idea that we can pray for whatever we want and we're going to get it. It comes with a condition. And that's my second point, is that when we pray, we must abide in Christ. We must abide Christ's words when we pray. He says it this way, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you can ask whatever you like. So if Christ's words are in by, uh, abiding in us, uh, then this tends to rule out some of the more vain things we could pray for, like, God, I just really want a billion dollars and that sports car and that mansion. If you could just make that happen. Because God is not a genie just granting what we wish. Because if, if God's words, Christ's words, are really abiding in us, we're not going to ask for those things. And frankly, when it comes to prayer, I think that this abiding part is where we mess up sometimes. We're wanting God to abide all our words. But we're not abiding all of His. We want to shape God rather than letting God shape us. We aren't asking the right questions, really. We aren't listening to God's words. Um, there's, there's this story about a man and his wife. And ever since they were married, the man would make uh, toast for breakfast, and he would cut uh, the crust off the toast, and he would give it to his wife, and he would, he would eat the toast without the crust, and she would eat the crust. And this went on throughout their whole marriage until they were old. Until one day, she just stands up in a fit of rage and she says, why do you always give me the crust? I hate the crust. And the man, the old man at this time, looks confused and disheartened. You don't like the crust? He says, the crust is my favorite part. So I gave it to you. Don't 
make assumptions about what God likes or wants or desires when you can know the facts about what God likes or desires. I hate it, and it's a strong word. I hate it when people try to justify their behavior with the phrase, well, God wants me to be happy. No. God doesn't want the wrong things for you. And if the wrong things make you happy, God does not want that for your life. You will never find that phrase in the Bible. What God wants and desires is obedience. And in many ways, we've made Jesus pocket size where we can just sort of lug him around, where we shape God and he doesn't shape us, and he goes where we take him, and we've forgotten the character of Christ, which was always, since the beginning, hey, follow me. Peter, John, follow me. Instead, we have this idea of, you know, Jesus saying, hey, Peter, where are you going? Can I come? It never happened. Jesus said, follow me. Abiding in Jesus means we follow what he says, and he says that we should always be desiring God's will on earth, not our own. He wants us to love him, and love always prioritizes others before self. And my third point is that our prayers need to be real. Jesus in Matthew 6, 5 says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is not condemning the fact that people prayed out loud. It's about people putting on a public display for the sake of men, for the sake of other people. That's the problem. Because such a prayer is not a real prayer. It's just empty words. It's meant for the ears of the people listening. And so the reward that they received was not from God. It was from whatever the reaction of these people were. Like, hey, that guy is one pious guy. He really loves God, right? That's his reward because it's not genuine. It's not real. And, and so with those three points in mind, the idea that we need to be persistent the idea that we need to be, I just totally forgot the, uh, pr- the, the second point. What is it? Anyone remember? What was that? Abide in Christ, of course. Um, I had an energy drink this morning, and I'm like shaking. It was a really bad idea. And, and the idea that we need to be real. With that in mind, here's the crazy thing. When I, when I look uh, throughout the Bible, I see that... The reality of this 
prayer, this type of prayer um, that's described in the New Testament has existed the whole time, from Old Testament on. So when Jesus is talking about prayer, he's not talking about something new and novel. He's just bringing words to something that has always existed in the character of God and how he communicates with the world. And so let's talk about two, two stories um, that, I, that I've been told my entire life. Um, and these are Old Testament stories. The first is Samson's story that I'm sure a lot of people know uh, that we find in the book of Judges, chapter 13 through 16. Uh, now, Manoah was um, Samson's father. And Samson's mother had been visited by an angel. And the angel told her that, and I didn't say her name because it's really weird and I feel like I'm just going to say mozzarella because it's something that sounds close to that. Uh, but she is named in the Bible, and I'm very sorry to her if she's listening to me. Um, well, an angel comes to, to mozzarella and <laughs> oh gosh, don't strike that. So an angel comes to her and says, look, you're going to have a son, and so you better not eat any unclean things, uh, no fermented stuff like wine. And Annie's going to be a Nazarite, so he's got some vows. Uh, one of them is that he can't ever cut his hair. And so she goes and tells Manoah, hey, uh, I, I was visited by this angel, and he said these things. And so Manoah goes, and he prays. It says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be, born, that's to be born. And it says, God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again. And so we see God responding to prayer. You know, Manoah really is like, hey, I, I want to see this angel too. Uh, but also, if this is true, hey, teach me what I'm supposed to do to raise this child. But it, it doesn't end there. Samson grows up to be incredibly strong, an awesome warrior. Uh, and, and the Philistines, who were an enemy of Israel, really had trouble handling Samson. Uh, I mean, at one point, the Bible talks about how Samson slays uh, an entire group of Philistines, a thousand Philistines, with a donkey's jawbone. I could slay an entire box of Cheez-Its if left unsupervised, uh, but that's about it. So this guy was incredible. He was really, really strong, but he had, he had some vices. Uh, one of them was prostitutes uh, and Philistine women. So, you know, he's out uh, really destroying Philistine men and then uh, just being with Philistine prostitutes at night, which is weird, but that's what he was doing. And one of them in particular was named Delilah. And I am very angry about this because I think Delilah is one of the most beautiful names in the Bible, but I'm really leery about using it because she's portrayed so badly in the Bible. But anyways, Delilah is sort of conspiring with the Philistines uh, because they want to find out if Samson has any weaknesses. In fact, they want to find out the source of Samson's strength. 
which I find fascinating because I would never be like, what's the source of that man's strength, right? I'd be like, that guy has a lot of muscle. So he must have been like really super humanly strong. And there's no physical description of Samson, so he could have been like 5'5", 80 pounds with hair down to his kneecaps and just incredibly strong. So they were like, something is up. Uh, But anyway, his power had to be strong enough to where people are like, this guy's a superhero, we need to find his kryptonite. And so he goes about lying to Delilah because Delilah's asking him, hey, by the way, I love you. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Uh, By the way, what's the source of your strength? Don't you trust me? And he would lie to her and say weird things like, yeah, yeah, if you just bind my wrist with a single cord rope, right, I'll be so weak. Or if you weave my hair into a loom, then I'm just done. And, uh, and what's weird is that every time he told these things and he went to sleep, he woke up, and they happened. And you would think that at one point he would realize, like, I probably shouldn't trust this lady because I tell her these really weird things and then it happens. Uh, but Samson is noted for his strength, and that's it. Because uh, he just keeps telling her these these bizarre things, and eventually he tells the truth. And that's where it all goes wrong. Because when he wakes up and the Philistines are upon him, he is overcome. He's overwhelmed by them because his strength fails him. She had found the source of his strength. She had cut his hair. That's a really depressing story in the Bible, but it doesn't end there. See, when he was at his weakest, they gouge his eyes out, and they bring him to this temple to mock him, and thousands upon thousands of Philistines are here to see this man who had been really just destroying them, causing so much havoc. And he's put between two pillars, he's chained to them, he's blind, and he's weak. He does something fascinating. When he's weak, he prays. It says, he prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, Strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached out toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against him, his right hand on the one and his left on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Prayer and and miracles have existed in a tightly knit relationship since the beginning. It was a big prayer. And in that moment when Samson was at his weakness, he had to rely on the strength of someone else. And that was God when he was at his weakest in many ways he was at 
his purest. He knew he could do nothing without God. So in that moment, he was abiding in the words of God, and he asked and he received. Prayer is powerful. Uh, As a side note, we also see that in in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, this man of of prayer. Uh, But the one I want to talk about really quickly um, is the story of Joshua. So he was fighting uh, for the Israelites against uh, many united kings who despised him and especially despised this peace treaty that he made with Gibeon. And when God was delivering uh, Joshua's enemies to him and delivering his enemies to Israel, Joshua had this crazy, ridiculous prayer. He prayed, the sun stands still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. And what's crazy is that it did. Can you imagine God just pausing the earth and saying, I want you to see what you prayed for. And the sun just stayed in the, st- in the sky for an entire 24-hour period, just the sun not moving. Miracles have always been a part of how God operates, so it's really of little wonder that we see throughout the entire Bible that prayer has been there too. All along this relationship of prayer and miracles. I'm going to skip a little bit so I can end on time this time. But there's a story um, about Ethan. Ethan was a newborn baby who was diagnosed with leukemia. And his parents were doing the very painful and arduous task of walking a cemetery looking for a good burial site for their child. He was on hospice because he had AML, which is a very aggressive type of leukemia. And the doctor said, you know, he could do chemotherapy, but it's, it's very unlikely to work in these cases, and especially with infant children. The toxicity level to an infant with chemotherapy is, in many cases, fatal. And so Ethan's parents went home and they prayed. And they said, God, what do we do? And they both, they both woke up with the same idea. They're not going to put their child through that. It was likely just in many ways to expedite his death. And they, they wanted to cherish every moment that they had with their child. So the, the people or the, the doctors at Vanderbilt Hospital uh, respected this decision because in reality they saw the same thing that it was a long shot, it was unlikely to work, so they would respect the parents' decision not to put their child through that. But when Ethan's parents took him home, um, his baby acne, which is very common uh, in infants, uh, actually got infected. And so they had to take him back to the hospital. And that's when 
they saw that all of these tumors were starting to show up. It could have, it could have been um, uh, a clot buildup from leukemia cells, which they called chloroma. But they started to pop up everywhere, on his feet, on his hands, um, on his forearms, on his body. And what the doctor says is leukemia itself means cancer of the blood cell. It's a blood disease. But in this particular kind of leukemia, it can also go into the tissues. And that's what was happening with Ethan. He actually had leukemia in his skin, in his hands, his feet, his legs, as well as his liver and his spleen. He had a very advanced disease at this point. And so he was, he was three weeks old now, and his condition was really starting to decline. He wasn't eating, and he was experiencing sleep apnea. And, and the nurse said that he was starting to develop what's called sepsis, which is basically a total body infection. And they said that he would either go peacefully some night or he would begin to hemorrhage. And Ethan's mother recalls seeing blood come from his ears every once in a while, and she would find blood in his diapers, and she feared just looking in his diapers. She feared having to change her child for what she might find. And so when the hospice nurse finally arrived, that's when they were starting to realize the grim reality. That was that their child was going See, but they continued to pray. Both Ethan's parents and friends and community, they believed God for the impossible. And Ethan's mother says, I remember rocking him and singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. And Mandy says, I knew that if I just focused, Mandy is Ethan's mother, if I just focused my mind on Christ, that's the only way I can get through this. But when Ethan was in the midst of the greatest medical crisis, really that can happen to a child. Something weird happened. Late that night, after that moment, of saying, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Ethan started to eat. Just a little bit at a time. But then the next day, he, he was a little bit stronger. And, and they were thinking, maybe this is a final rebound before death. But over the next few weeks, Ethan started to improve. And he, he started to eat normally. He was, he was eating normally at this point. And Ethan's mother says, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and saying, you know what? I believe God's healing him. I can see God working. And over the next two weeks, Ethan improved and 
when Ethan's mother took him back to Vanderbilt to, to get a check of his blood count, they found that it was in the normal range. And see, this, this stumped the doctors, absolutely, because he was as sick as you could possibly be as a child. And he just spontaneously got better. It didn't make sense. And so Dr. Rhodes, the physician, wanted to look. And so they did a bone marrow test, and it showed that there was no evidence of leukemia. And the tumors just gradually went away. And the doctor said it was miraculous to witness it. Ethan's parents witnessed a miracle because when they took Ethan in a few weeks later and did another bone marrow biopsy, the test was confirmed. There's just no signs of leukemia at all. Prayer is powerful. And today, Ethan is two years old, and he's perfectly healthy. If we are persistent in our prayers, if we abide in Christ and follow His Word, if we are real in what we ask, we too can witness miracles. Will you pray with me? God, I just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my stories and, 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 and my heart when it comes to how you move in prayer and how you work miracles in our lives, God. And I just pray that we would, we would learn to love you through our persistence in prayer, God, that we would learn to love you by abiding your words and following the things that you've asked of us in our lives, God. And I pray that we would be real in what we ask, that our prayers would be only for your ears, God, that you would move in our lives in miraculous ways. And God, most of all, I pray that we would see miracles in our lives, God, that you would give us our own stories. And we just thank you so much for the miracles that you do work in, in people's lives. We thank you so much that there is a kid, Ethan, out there who is living a testimony of your grace and your work and your power in the lives of believers today. People who believe in the impossible and see it happen. God, I pray that we too would see it happen in our lives, that we would speak your language, God, that we would pray for miracles and that we would get them. We thank you so much. In your precious and holy name, amen.